Would you take out your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 1 Samuel 27? Um, just a small addition to your bulletin, I'm going to read 1 Samuel 27, and then I'm going to read the first two verses of 1 Samuel 28, um, and, and it'll make sense when we get there. Now, last week, we watched as David, for the second time in three chapters, had an opportunity to kill Saul, and for the second time in three chapters, he showed great personal self-control and great faith by sparing Saul's life. And for the second time in three chapters, Saul seemed repentant. But it appears that, once again, Saul's repentance had an expiration date. And by the time we get to 1 Samuel 27, Saul is hunting David down once again. Now, before I read the text, let me draw your attention to a couple things. First, you're going to see a, a contrast here. Oftentimes in the life of David, the contrast is between David and Saul. They, they serve as a foil to each other. That's a literary term. They're contrast to each other. But in this chapter, David actually serves as a foil to himself. When you think about the David who was steady and faithful in chapters 24 and 26, you're going to see a very different David. He, he's one now who is worried. He is anxious. He almost seems to be a different man. And we need to think about what happened. What happened from 26 to 27 that David would go from steadfast and immovable to fearful in just one chapter? Second, you're going to notice as I read the chapter, David does some really questionable things. And God really doesn't weigh in. He, he, there's no narrator that says, now David shouldn't have done that. And it gives us an opportunity to assess the morality of his actions according to the scriptures. And so we should be doing that. Did, was David right to do what he did? And then third, we're going to see how David's actions catch up with him at the end. That's why we're going to go through chapter 28, verses 1 and 2, because uh, that'll show us the predicament that David's actions um, cause for him. Listen now to the reading of God's word. 1 Samuel starting uh, 27, verse 1. Then David said in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer with the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household. And David with his two uh, uh, wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, If I found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country farms that, that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old as far as Shur to the land of Egypt. 
And David would strike the land, and he would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, Where have you made a raid today? David would say, Against the Negeb of Judah. Now, just to be clear, David's not telling the truth here. The Negev of Judah makes it sound like he is attacking Israel and the area around Israel, but he's actually been attacking these enemies of Israel in the outlying areas. So he'd say, against the Negev of the Jeremelites, uh, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking he's made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I'll make you my bodyguard for life. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. Uh, several years ago, an atheist wrote an article that he thought exposed the sins of some of the great heroes of the Bible. And his thinking was, as he acted like an investigative reporter, scouring the pages of Scripture and dug up dirt on all these biblical heroes, he thought he could broadcast it to the whole world and let all of us know that these supposed heroes of the Bible were really scoundrels. And the end goal was to bring into question the character of a God who would advocate for men like that. In a sense, it was cancel culture before cancel culture was cool. And so he talked about Abraham. You know, Scripture calls Abraham a friend of God, and this man says, if God has friends like Abraham, a man who was willing to, to, to even turn over his own wife to protect his own hide, well, this God must not be a very good God. Or Jacob. Jacob was a deceiver and a cheat. And God identifies himself as the God of Jacob. And so this atheist says, what kind of God would do that? Well, what kind of God would identify himself as the God of a scoundrel like that? And then, of course, there's David. David is identified in Scripture as the man after God's own heart. The same David who seduced Bathsheba and then had her husband killed to cover it up. The same David that we see here killing people by the hundreds. What kind of God would want anything to do with someone like that? How do we as Christians respond to this atheist's accusation? I'll tell you how I would respond. It's true and it's wonderful that this God would associate with scoundrels and lowlifes and cheats and adulterers and all-around sinners. And you and I both know why that's good news. Because that means those people are like us. That means that this God, the God of the Bible, associates with people like you and me. 
And we know that because he associated with people like Abraham and Jacob and David. In fact, he doesn't just associate with such low life, such scum of the earth. He adopts us into his family. He gives us his spirit. He calls us his children. There's a good reason that the Bible at times is, is awkwardly honest about the sins of those who line its pages, the supposed heroes of the faith. It's because the Bible is teaching us that our trust cannot be in men. It's not in David, it's not in Abraham, it's not in Jacob. We trust in God. It reminds us again and again, the best of men are men at best. And so we agree on this with the atheists that wrote that article. But the difference is, the atheist sees that as being to God's shame. Why would you want a God like that? And we see it as God's glory. That a God as holy as he would associate with sinners like us. How does that happen? It is only through the merits of his son, Jesus Christ, that he associates with sinners like us. Today's passage that I read in your hearing is a crystal clear reminder that David, despite all that he got right, and he got a lot right, he wrote a significant portion of the Old Testament. He got a lot right. He, God used him for a lot of great things, but David was a sinner too. You know, most of us, when we think of David's sin, we think of his sin with Bathsheba, adultery, a murderous cover-up, but you know, 1 Samuel 27 reminds us David was fairly creative. He wasn't a one-trick pony in how he sinned. And, and this chapter contains a very prominent display of depravity on David's part. As we work through the text, I'm going to follow a commentator named Dale Ralph Davis. He divided this chapter into four parts. I'm going to change some of the terminology, but it's in verses 1 to 4, we see David's plan. In 5 to 7, we see David's place. 8 to 12, we see David's practice. And then in chapter 28, verses 1 and 2, we're going to see David's predicament. So first, let's look at, at David's plan. We closed out chapter 26 last week. David's faith seemed unshakable. He, he has had the opportunity to kill Saul. Saul has been pursuing him for years. It seemed as if God has just dropped Saul into his lap. But he says, I'm not going to raise my hand against God's anointed. God will take care of Saul. I'm not worried about it. Then we come to chapter 27, and immediately David's faith is faltering, and he is convinced that Saul is going to get him. He, all that faith that we saw in 26, it, is, it has fallen away. In, in his own eyes, by chapter 27, David's death is imminent. Now, don't forget, God has made David promises that have not yet come true. So David is, as we've said, effectively he's invincible until those promises come true but he's forgotten that and so by chapter 27 he he doesn't trust God's plan look at verse 1 there's nothing better for me than I escape to the land of the Philistines then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer and I'll escape out of his hand that, that's David's plan seek refuge from Saul in the land of the Philistines now in case you don't remember the Philistines are not just Israel's arch enemy but the Philistines really hate David. And if there's one town among the Philistines that really hates David, it's the town of Gath. You know who was from Gath? Goliath. Now, I don't know if Goliath 
if his widow was a giant too, but there's an angry widow in Gath. In fact, there's a lot of angry widows in Gath, because you remember, David had to pay a bride price to Saul. It was supposed to be a hundred Philistine foreskins, but David upped the ante, brought him 200 Philistine foreskins. There's a lot of angry widows in Gath, and that is the place to which David retreated. But his thought process is this. If I go to Philistia, Saul won't follow me there because then he'd have to be on the offensive. He, he would have a number of enemies to deal with, and so he's going to leave me alone. Now, if you've been tracking along, this is not the first time David has fled to the land of the Philistines for refuge. Back in 21, David fled to Gath. It seems like David thought he could go unrecognized. Well, immediately he's recognized, and so what David does there in Gath is he does what what we'd have to call an Academy Award-winning performance as a crazy man. So he's scratching on the door, and he's drooling on himself, and Achish thinks he's gone insane, and he lets David go. It's all an act, but he outsmarted Achish. Well, six uh, six chapters later, here we are again. So here's our question. How did we go from steadfast, immovable, faithful David in chapters 24 and 26 to despairing David, faltering faith David in 27? You know, I I can't imagine the stress of being hunted by the king. You remember Saul, for a number of years now, has had 3,000 of Israel's best soldiers on one mission, kill David. The stress of that undoubtedly has taken its toll on him. I'm sympathetic with that. We should be. Uh, David's got the anxieties of caring for his own family. We won't get into the two wives thing at this point, but he's got the anxiety of caring for his family, but also he's got 600 other families to care for. This is a lot of weight upon him. And he gets the idea that the land of the Philistines could be a haven, a a refuge for him. Look at verse 1 again. So we get a really big clue as to what's changed in David. Then David said in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. David said in his heart. Now David's talking to himself. We all talk to ourselves. You might talk to yourself out loud. You might not, but we all talk to ourselves inwardly. We we tell ourselves things. We can convince ourselves of things. But here's the problem. David's convincing himself of all the wrong things. Saul's going to get me. This is hopeless. God, God can't protect me. And David is believing his own lies. You know, that's what worry is. Letting your imagination create a worst-case scenario, and then you believe it. And then it becomes the truth to you. And that's what Saul's doing here. I mean, what David's doing here is imagination has run away. He's ceased to trust God. And now he's, he's scared. And so he says, verse 1, now, now I'll perish. He knew better. He had God's promises, but he's let them go. And so often what we tell ourselves, whether it's true or not, becomes true. In fact, look again at verse 1. He says, there's nothing better for me than that I should escape. And then he says, I shall escape. That's what I'm going to do. That's my only hope. He is speaking to himself 
but he's speaking to himself not out of the promises and the adequacy of God. He's speaking to himself out of what his eyes can see, and he's leaning on his own understanding. I want you to see something one chapter before, because I think we get another clue as to why David's faith is faltering. Go back to chapter 26. David's addressing Saul. Actually, he's addressing um, uh, the commander of Saul's army. And in verse 19, he says, Now, therefore, let my lord the king hear the words of the servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men... May they be accursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. David's telling us something extremely important here. Saul, because your men are constantly hunting me, I can't go to the temple, or I can't go to the tabernacle. I can't go into worship. I am cut off from corporate worship. I am cut off from fellowship. I'm cut off from the priest. I'm cut off from all these things that are my spiritual livelihood. Your men are effectively saying to me, go serve other gods. You know, it's no coincidence that there was no mention of God in this chapter because that's the frame of mind David is in. He's not thinking about God. He's, he, he's had to distance himself from the gathering of the saints. He's had to distance himself from the means of grace. And we need to let this point sink down into our hearts. When we are cut off from the means of grace, whether it's voluntary or not, it will have negative effects on us. Our faith will falter. So what do we do when we've become, and David in many ways is a functional atheist in chapter 27. He, he, he says nothing about God. God does not seem to invade his thoughts at all. What do we do when our mind is telling us things that are not consistent with God's word or with God's promises? We have to speak truth to ourselves. I want you to see a great example of this. Turn with me to one of David's psalms, Psalm 103. If you're using the Bible in your row, it's on page 502. We don't know when David wrote this psalm, but he's teaching us how to preach truth to our hearts when we're afraid, when the world is pressing in on us. And let me show you a couple of things David does here in Psalm 103. First, he, he calls to remembrance God's past faithfulness. Look at verse 2, Psalm 103, verse 2, forget not all his benefits. Consider the Lord's kindness, consider all that the Lord has done for you, consider the Ebenezer's that God has raised up for you along the way. Just recall all the ways that God has been faithful. You know, use Jeremiah's technique in the book of Lamentations as everything is falling apart in Jerusalem and Jeremiah's watching it. He says, you know, look at the pattern of the seasons, how the seasons come and go, and the sun is rising and setting. Great is your faithfulness, O God. 
And he preaches that to himself in Lamentations. And we've got to preach truth to ourselves about God's past faithfulness. You know, if David had just had the clarity of mind for a minute to go, you know what, has God ever protected me from Saul in the past? Ah, well, let's just think back. In chapter 23, Saul was about to catch David, but the Philistines come in, and Saul has to direct his attention to the Philistines. Wow, God protected him by sending the enemy. Chapter 24, the Lord placed Saul at David's mercy in the cave in Engedi. Saul just happened into the cave where David was hiding. Chapter 25, David heard Abigail's testimony. Abigail, this woman who was married to a man whose name literally is fool, Abigail says, David, you know, if men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound up in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And she reminds him there, God's going to protect you. Chapter 26, David and Abishai sneak through an encampment of 3,000 of Israel's best soldiers, get all the way to Saul, grab Saul's spear and water jar, and sneak out while everybody's asleep. David has every reason to believe that God can protect him in the future by looking at the past. So the first thing he does in Psalm 103 is, hey, look at all God's benefits. Look what he's done in the past. And then the second thing he does in Psalm 103 is he reminds himself who God is. He reminds himself of the character of God. Look at, at verses 6 through 8. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Oh, if, he, if he had just looked at the character of God, you know, his heart might have said, well, I don't feel that. And God says, but it's true because I've told you in my word. And if he would have just fixed his attention on the character of God, it would have strengthened his faith. And then third in Psalm 103, David stirs himself up to, to praise God. He, he doesn't rely on his feelings. He tells his feelings what to do. He leads with his will and his feelings follow. So look down at verses 20 to 22. He tells his soul, bless the Lord, O my soul. Oh, you as angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice. Bless the Lord, all his hosts. And then the end of 22, bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Friends, nobody preaches to you more than you do. Don't listen to yourself unless you first listen to God. Dale Ralph Davis says, all of us propagandize our souls. That is, we constantly talk to ourselves. How crucial is it to feed our souls true propaganda, especially about the adequacy of God? Now, David didn't do that. And our minds, they're a vacuum. They need something to cling to. And when we're not filling our minds with thoughts of God and what he's done and his character and his promises, we will fill them with other thoughts. And that's what David's doing. And he comes up with a new plan. I will be my own savior. I will escape to the land of the Philistines. I don't have to wait on God to protect me. I'll take matters into my own hands. That's the plan. And if you're looking at your watch thinking we're only 25% of the way through, we got a long time left to go, stop. It doesn't work that way. Points two, three, and four are going to be a lot shorter than point one. Point two, look at the place. As questionable as David's plan to go to Philistia was, he, he's not a fool. I want you to see what he does. It's not commendable, but it is brilliant. 
he comes to Philistia, uh, Philistia, he stays with Achish, the king, for a while, and he gives Achish the impression that he's turned against Israel. And Achish has t- heard stories, undoubtedly, about how Saul is pursuing David, so it seems reasonable David has thrown up his hands and says, I'm done with that place. I'm joining your ranks, Achish. I will fight for you, and I will fight against the Israelites. Now, it's not true. It's not true. We'll see that. And he knows the only way he can pull the wool over Achish's eyes is if he's not under Achish's thumb. So he says, you know what? There's 600 men plus their families. There's no need for us to be right under your nose. We're only going to get in the way So why don't you give us somewhere that we can go and we'll set up camp there. So we're not in your way, but we'll still fight for you. Now, you have to wonder, Achish has already been down this road once with David. He's already been deceived by David once. Why in the world would he go for this again? Well, I think there's three possibilities. One is he's forgotten. I think that's very unlikely. Second, he's forgiven David and he's thinking, you know, this guy could be a really good asset for me. Third possibility, Achish may not be a person's name. It may be a title for the king. So this may be a totally different person than we were dealing with back in chapter 21. Well, either way, verse 6 says, So Achish gave David Ziklag. Ziklag was probably near the southern Judean desert. This would allow David to operate independently of Achish and safe out of Saul's reach. Now, there's something fascinating about Ziklag. Ziklag, if you were to go back to Joshua 15, you would see Ziklag was actually given as allotment to the tribe of Judah during the distribution of land under Joshua. But Judah never captured it. They they never took what belonged to them. And so Achish is actually giving David what already is rightly David's tribe's land. Through his dealing with Achish, he secured uh, Ziklag. And so that's why verse 6 makes the point, saying, Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And so Ziklag becomes the home base for David and his men, and it allowed David to operate without Achish looking over his shoulder. So that's the place. Third thing I want you to see is David's practice, or our text calls it his custom. But he's in Philistia, and he's going to do something incredibly tricky. He's convinced Achish, I'm on your side, I'm going to fight your enemies, and guess what? Your enemies are the people of Israel, so I'm going to fight against them. How in the world could David, the future king, wage war against his own future kingdom? That's a pretty big skeleton in the closet, isn't it, for a future king? Look what he does, 1 Samuel 27, verses 8 and 9. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as Shur to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, come back to Achish. So they would go and do these raids, and they're raiding enemies of Israel. They're actually doing what God had called Israel to do in the first place, which was to totally annihilate the enemies in Canaan. But Israel failed to do it. And so David is actually helping Israel to secure her borders here. But then Achish would want reports from David, and so verse 10, when Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? 
David wouldn't tell him it was against the Geshurites or the Gerizites. He would say against the Negev of Judah or against the Negev of the uh, Jeremelites or against the Negev of the Kenites. In other words, these were either Israel's territory or their allies. He's deceiving Achish, telling him the raids were against Israel and her allies. And so Achish hears this and he goes, you know, this is great. I've got this guy in my pocket. Israel's going to hate him. And so you see him say later, hey, he's going to be my servant forever. Now, this is brilliant on David's part. It, it's not commendable. And he's weaving a pretty thick web of lies. And there's an even uglier side to it. This is the, really the moral dilemma of this passage, I think. It's, it's one that, that commentators, even good commentators, fall out on different sides about. David had the the philosophy, dead men tell no tales. He knew that if he goes and raids the, the, the Gearsites and he leaves anybody alive, word's going to get back to Achish that he's been doing that. And so he killed everyone. He completely annihilated them. And Achish knows nothing about it. Matthew Henry, I, I think one of the best commentators that, that you can get your hands on, um, Matthew Henry, whom I deeply respect, says David was actually doing God's will by wiping out these neighboring tribes, and that was what Israel was supposed to have done at the conquest of the land, but they, they failed to do it. It's a moral dilemma. It's, it's hard to know exactly whether David ought to have done that or not. I think there's a, a, a less gray area here. Uh, even if we can defend David's annihilation of these tribes, which is questionable, we can't defend his lies to Achish. If we read the text fairly, we see even if we can justify him helping Israel, we cannot justify the incessant lies to Achish. Gordon Ketty, commentator, writes, David was brilliant and successful, but he slaughtered whole communities and lied through his teeth to Achish in the process. He had left his principles in the mountains of Judah and boxed himself into a corner where deceit and ruthlessness were the staples that kept him alive. It's a very different David than the David we've seen in the past. Just think of the David who wrote in Psalm 34, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. He is not in a good place spiritually here. His practice reminds us that there's a huge difference between trusting the Lord and taking matters into our own hands. In scrambling to work out his own salvation here, David was compromising what he knew to be right in order to save his own hide. It's no wonder we see no mention of God or the tabernacle or the priests or the word in this chapter because they were irrelevant to David. Well, as it tends to do, David's sins caught up with him. And we see this practice of raiding and annihilating and deceiving creates a huge predicament. Turn over to 1 Samuel 28, verses 1 and 2. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand, you and your men are about to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, very well, you shall know that you're, what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I'll make you my bodyguard for life. You see his predicament. If he says no to Achish, Achish is going to turn against him. He's going to find out that David's been deceiving him. If he says yes to Achish, he's going to be fighting his own kinsmen in the Israelites. That's why his, his um, 
response to Achish is, is ambiguous. You shall know what I'm able to do. You know, the story pauses right there. It's fascinating. It, it completely changes gears. Um, Achish gets distracted with another invader. And I think it's a cliffhanger on purpose because I think you and I are, to, uh, are left evaluating David's actions and the effects of them. You know, you may feel that some of what David did was justified. If you could argue that he was, was taking the land that God had rightly given them, but we can't argue that everything he did was. Some of it was downright wicked and almost cost David his life and any sort of credibility that he would have had as king if he had gone to fight against Israel. David taking matters into his own hands, trying to save himself, almost got him killed. Now you learn when you get to chapter 19 that David was spared from this predicament. God spared David because the other Philistine leaders didn't trust David. They rejected him, said he didn't need to fight for them. But it's a perfect picture of exactly what the Bible is trying to teach us. Again, Ralph Davis says, the Bible does not claim that God's servants are dipped in Clorox so they'll be infallibly sin-free and attractive to us. David was brilliant, he was brave, he was handsome, and he was capable of terrible sin. We're confronted when we study someone like David, Jacob, Abraham, with the reality that the Bible does not try to make these men the heroes. The Bible does not paint them with rose-colored glasses. The Bible paints them warts and all. And for those of you that grew up in churches that just moralized and you were told that the story of Daniel was so that you could dare to be a Daniel or the story of David and Goliath was so that you could go out and slay your giants, you've missed that point. The heroes of the stories of the Bible are not the heroes of the stories of the Bible. Joshua didn't fight the battle of Jericho, did he? We might sing it, but who fought the battle of Jericho? God did. Who slew David's giants? God did. We learn lessons from the men and women of Scripture, but none of them are the hero of the story. Without God's intervention, David would have destroyed his chance of being king and even lost his life. That's the whole story of the Bible. We mess up, God cleans up. And the purpose of it all is so that we would be reminded that Jesus is the only king, Jesus is the only one that we can trust to always do what is right and to tell us the truth. And so, far from what this atheist was seeking to do that I told you about in the beginning, shaking our faith when we see the heroes of the Bible fail, it actually reinforces our faith, doesn't it? It strengthens our faith. Because if God only loves the squeaky clean, what hope do we have? But if God loves and even holds on to a sinner like David, even after David's faith has failed and faltered, then you and I can have hope too, can't we? that our sins will be remembered no more, that he'll keep us from our enemies and our greatest enemy, which is ourself, and he will hold us fast until he brings us into glory. How do we apply this text? A couple quick points. First, this chapter just reminds us how badly we need the means of grace, how badly we need to gather with God's people under the teaching of God's word. It is not coincidental 
that David failed so greatly when he was cut off from the means of grace. We read of no prayers to God for wisdom, no consultation of God's word, no, no seeking the counsel of, of godly friends. Our capacity to choose godliness over sin is pretty straightforward. God has established these means of grace, the word and sacraments and prayer, to strengthen us so that our faith wouldn't fail. And when we're deprived of them, or when we deprive ourselves, oftentimes our faith will falter and our tendency to sin and folly grows. This example from David reminds us, even in the midst of trials, even in the midst of all sorts of excuses that we could make, even in the midst of extraordinary busyness, you and I need to hold fast to our Bibles. We need to, to draw near to God in fervent prayer. We need to gather with God's people. In his panic, David ceased waiting on the Lord's timing, and he cast himself down a path of unbelief that only led to sorrow. We need the means of grace. Second, just because it works doesn't mean it's right. We've got to understand that. David's plan actually worked here. Now, there was a lot of collateral damage, but Saul did stop pursuing him for a time, for the 16 months that he was there. David was right. His plan got Saul off his case. But we need to understand, in God's economy, the ends do not necessarily justify the means. Or to put it more biblically, we never need to compromise what is true and right and just and pure in order to bring about our own desired end. God's work must be done God's way. The ends do not justify the means. Third, we see it here, God uses sin sinlessly. David did foolish stuff. David's going to do more foolish stuff. At times, the foolish stuff David's does will cause him and others to suffer but this text reminds us that God uses sin sinlessly he uses David's deception he's not the author of David's sin but he uses David's deception to get Ziklag he uses David's ruthless raids to protect Israel he even preserves David for the throne what an awesome God that we serve, that he's able to take Satan's best efforts to destroy us, to undermine us, to steal our credibility, and turn them back on Satan's head. He uses sin sinlessly to accomplish his own ends. Let's pray together. Lord God, your word is good and true and right. It gives us everything we need for life and godliness. Help us to be attentive to it in our own lives, to not leave the sermon here in this room, but to take it with us. Father, help us to, to ponder both the ministry from this morning and this evening, and to search our own hearts. Call us to repentance where we need to, and help us to be faithful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.